The Bob Murphy Show, episode 238. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Before I dive into the intro for today's episode, a brief correction. Last episode, when I was talking about uh, Harari and his discussion about population growth and how that's not going to be a technological problem feeding all these people, but instead it's going to be an issue of what are we going to do with them if they're not contributing? I was agreeing with him narrowly on the point that, oh, good for him. He realizes it's not going to be a problem to feed whatever, 30 billion people a few centuries from now or whatever the numbers happen to be. That's not going to be an issue. The earth is humongous. It can carry a lot more people than it does now. And I had a throwaway line. I said something along the lines of, if you took a billion people and put them in Texas, they would each have a few acres. Okay, so that's actually, I was overstating it, that I went and looked it up afterward. Texas has about 172 million acres. Okay, so if you took 172 million people and put them in Texas, they would each have one acre. That's, <laughs> that's the number. So I overstated it. I think what happened is, because I had done some research before on population growth and I was coming up with some you know, intuitive ways for Americans to get the sense of just how much land area there is, let alone ocean surface. You know, once we figure out how to make floating cities, that's going to quadruple the amount of surface area we have to play with just on Earth. I think that the actual factoid was something more along the lines of if you took the current population of the U.S. and had like three people in a household, they could all move to Texas and live comfortably, you know, each in a, in a household that was the same density of like a, a standard suburban neighborhood. I think it was something like that, which, you know, that kind of fits with these numbers. All right. So that, so there's that correction. Now let's, let's transition to today's episode. Some of the guest is Johnny Vedmore. Here's his bio. Uh, he's a completely independent investigative journalist and musician from Wales. His work aims to expose the powerful people who are overlooked by other journalists and bring new information to his readers. And then he gives information on how to get in touch with him. And he's where I found Johnny was a few people who are in this genre of like the new world order stuff and world economic forum sent me, he has this article that I just described as a tour de force. It's called Dr. Klaus Schwab or colon, how the CFR taught me to stop worrying and love the bomb. Right. So he's making allusions there to the movie, Dr. Strangelove. And it's just, well, let me just read the, well, I think I do read the, the blurb of this when I first start talking to him. So I won't read it now. Uh, the website is Unlimited Hangout. And in the beginning of this interview, I asked Johnny to explain that a little bit. So let me just say, I think you're going to get more out of this interview if you have the time and are willing to do this. Stop listening right now and go read Johnny's article because his, how can I put this? His personality might not be what you were expecting. Okay, you're going to read this article and say, whoa, this must be some, you know, 50-year-old sleuth who's, you know, a, a bloodhound tracking down leads and looking up stuff in dusty old libraries and da-da-da. And 
you know, he must know the ins and outs of the geopolitics and da, 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 and you'll see, no, that's that's not <laughs> what Johnny is at all. And, and so again, I, I think you will enjoy the interview where this is one of the most fun interviews I've done. And it's partly though, because I knew this essay that then that's why I got in touch with him. And so it was, it was fun, you know, to see what an interesting character he is in real life. And, you know, to see, oh, this is the guy that generated this amazing article. So the article is amazing on its own merits. But then, like I say, I think you'll enjoy the interview more if you first read it. One other little uh, caveat before we dive in. Early on in the interview, Johnny casually mentions how at this Unlimited Hangout website, what they try to do is, you know, break stories, reports about people who maybe you've never heard of before, oh, but you are going to hear about them, you know, one or two years from now. And so this is sort of like, you know, the canary in the coal mine thing for these powerful elites. And so I asked him, I said, hey, let's do a little experiment if you don't mind. You know, could you throw out some names now so that a few years from now, people who might come back and listen to this interview can see, was this guy Vedmore right at the time, back in, you know, early 2022 when he recorded this interview with Murphy? And I won't spoil it now. I'm going to entice you to listen to the interview. He throws out some names of, it's not people I know personally, but certainly I've heard of them. And maybe, you know, they move in similar circles as me. So I was in sort of an awkward position where he's basically saying these guys are, you know, up to no good. So I'm, let me just be clear. I, of course, I'm not endorsing that view. I don't, haven't seen what Johnny's evidence is, but I didn't want to derail the interview and say, well, you know, we can't have you making unsupported accusations, you know, because I asked him. (laughs) So he answered my question. And the point of this interview was to talk about Klaus Schwab and his article on him, not to go off on a tangent about stuff he hasn't published yet too. So anyway, I'm just explaining that was kind of the situation. And so I just moved on. But, you know, I do want to acknowledge up front here in the opening remarks that, of course, I haven't seen Johnny's article yet. So I guess we'll see (laughs) if he turns out to be right about those people. Okay, so without further ado, here is my interview with Johnny Vedmore. Well, Johnny, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. I'm happy to be here. Really happy to be speaking with someone with wider knowledge than I about a subject that's really complicated. And I'm really interested in seeing where you're going with this, where you'll go and what questions you'll ask. So, Well, I, I appreciate that. Although, uh, as I, I would have said to the listeners in the introduction to this episode, that your article on Klaus Schwab was a tour de force. Like it was a, you know, would have been a, a good term paper for a college class. So I, But before we get into that, I think maybe my listeners might want to know, because I came across your article somebody I know who's really into, you know, New World Order stuff and that, that kind of genre mm-hmm. sent it to me and I just started to skim through. I was like, wow, this guy really did a lot of research here. But I'm not familiar like this website, Unlimited Hangout. I think this is the first time I've come across it. So can you just tell us yeah. a little bit about like your background in this website? Yeah, it's not a surprise that this would be the first time you come across it because personally, I've been a few years uh, more than through just the coronavirus experience where lots of people got censored. When that started, it was just like, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I've got no difference. This is no difference to what I normally experience. Originally, I started working in hotels. I wasn't aiming to be a journalist. I was never good in college. I had something called Graves' disease all through my life. So even though I'm quite interested in things, I read a lot and I always took a note of history and I, I always, I'm, I just want to learn and learn all the time. I find things interesting. I was ill through most of my life with something that was eventually sent me to the edge of death when I was about 27. I was, uh, I like went down to eight stone and I was literally on my way out. And then they di- finally diagnosed me after 13 years of misdiagnosis. And, and then 
did a lot of music. I did a lot of like repairing my my identity and my soul after years of being sick because it was 13 years of really being heavily sick through that period and lots of other experiences. And it led me to a point where I wanted to get my music out and I wanted to be a rock and roller. I didn't want to be a famous person on the radio who everybody listens to. I just wanted to go out and play my music. I wanted to play guitar and sing and scream and 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 do all the things you like to do. And all of the clubs were closing down and all of the music venues were being shut down by things popping up in the city center. And I, I it, it became clear after years and years of experience that the way we wanted to live our life in the past and the things we wanted to do there were roadblocks going up everywhere and walls going up everywhere and society was changing in a way that wasn't consensual to a lot of the people who I was friends with. I saw lots of friendship groups torn apart by identity politics and and stupid arguments that were, you know, uh, two years later, they've even forgotten those arguments to split their friendships, their lifetime friendships apart. And they're onto another argument where they're suddenly on the same side again, and they still hate each other, though. And it's like the constant division, division, division. And it, I, I just realized that after years of researching behind the scenes, I was going to have to start writing things down. And so I, I went on to write my own, uh, do my own investigation. So histories of some wealthy and famous people. Um, that put me on a path eventually uh, in about 2019. I had written an article, a German Epstein associate who no one was talking about, who was extremely powerful, linked in all sorts of so many ways. Um, and that put me in line with a limited hangout where I, I publish articles as well. I'm also do my own stuff. I have lots of different projects going on. I'm a very varied person when it comes down to what I like. But a limited hangout is really centrally focused on the intelligence agencies their manipulations of corporations the big business of the tech revolution we look at some we investigate some of the people who we believe are going to be on people's radars in the next three to four years but who are lesser known who don't who people haven't encountered yet each person at Unlimited Hangout is given a lot of reign over what they want to write about. It's very much like Whitney Webb, who focuses on us writing about something we enjoy writing about, but it's appropriate for the site. So, you know, I've read many things that aren't appropriate for the site, and they don't even you know, consider them. But what's very appropriate for the site is focusing in on this tech revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, the World Economic Forum, the power structures, which are the past of the CIA. Of course, Whitney is one of the lead reporters on Epstein and the Maxwell history of the case, of the most recent case, but also of Robert Maxwell's empire, of the promised software, of a lot of the early pioneering intelligent softwares that would literally create the internet and the world we've got today and all the technologies we got today were fundamentally built on a filter that was put in by intelligence agencies. You could say a filter, but many different sort of infiltration from many different angles to mean that they basically have control of systems from the very off. Now, I, I'm, st- I'm looking into something like this about the entire birth of the internet at the moment, which I can't really talk about because it's, I, it's two projects I'm working on at the moment that go back all the way to the early 80s and the Usenet, which was like um, a system that allowed mainly academics, to communicate through servers that were located at first in college campuses and main centers. And 
but people used to publish under their own names and etc. There's masses of archives. The archives have been destroyed over time. But there's lots of things about the creation of the internet where if you actually study what you discover is that people, and this is the same with everything. This is the same with every bit of technology, every new change in innovation, innovation in ideology or innovation in society or government is that the people in the know who have gamed this out, usually using things like game theory and et cetera, they know what's coming. They know what's coming in 20 years time and they implement their takeover of society before we even know it's happening, before we've even understood the technology is coming. If you go back to late 80s, like 1989, you got people working in hedge funds, futuristic hedge funds like D.E. Shaw, who mm. are creating, who are put, about to put people into certain heads of power of big internet corporations, and they would monopolize the market straight from the off. They know what's coming. Most people in 1989 hadn't got a clue what the internet would potentially bring or what it would look like in four years' time, six years' time, let alone in the future. But using techniques, really, really scientific methods, industrial scientific methods like game theory, they were able, these bigger companies and these bigger organizations and intelligence agencies, able to map out what the future looks like, at least for the next decade quite accurately, sometimes, depending on what the subject is, sometimes scarily predict it, 99.9% probability, things that we can't even see coming. And so it's all about what we try and do is take a look at the past, take a look at how these infrastructures became manifest within our systems of government and etc., where they come from, why they were implemented, who were the people behind them, the context of their time, the context of their family, the context of their history, the context of everything from their, their religion all the way to their political beliefs. You know, we try and understand the whole context. And what Whitney Webb put together is something that's truly independent, hence the name Unlimited Hangout. It's truly independent because it's, uh, and we're, we're all a bunch of censored people, really. That's mm-hmm. what these, uh, you'll see a lot of, I think you'll see a lot of media, independent media, um, independent media with integrity, people giving the facts, explaining the context, giving evidence so people can understand a much more rounded view of the situation we find ourselves in rather than the limited view that you normally get from uh, a little tiny article in the newspaper and another little tiny article over here that repeat the same information over and over again. And it's only the information that they're allowed to say. So we go deep, we go very deep. And it's a very exciting place to look for. Because I'm, I'm working on about five or six different stories right now. And some of them are mind blowing. They're truly, they only are not reported because there's no one in a situation given that free reign to look for the stories. Mm. People in media are so restrained. You've got to report about this. You've got to report about that. I'm allowed to wander around the place and find what the stories really are and what they look like within the wider context of time and space. (laughs) So that's what I do. I love it. I'm going to continue doing it whether or not people support my work. So I'm going to keep John on. But I I think I've got to a point in my career now where, like the last Schwab article, you say, I mean, just before I released that, someone first said that, my original the Schwab Family Values piece, the first part to it was my seminal piece. And I was like, oh, you wait till you see this one. Now. <laughs> and 
every piece feels like that to me mm. now. I'm finding some really interesting stuff. There's loads of history that have never been reported, never been reported. There's lots of things that have happened that just people don't realize the connections and you have to really understand the context of the time. So I go really deep and this has been an adventure that I love because I love history too and I love all of those things. But I, I see the dangers of the future. I know that I've got to do something and I've had no university education, no college education. I only got one GCSE in English literature. And I think that's because the teacher liked me, uh, <laughs> liked the fact that I was a bit spunky. But, you know, it does not matter what qualifications you've got. If you've got a passion to understand the truth and look at evidence, go on that journey, everybody, because I am no different from everybody else. When people ask, who am I? I'm a human who's trying to make sense of what's going on. So I have some information that I've discovered and I've found the sources for, but I also have a lack of holes in my knowledge that I'm desperate to fill up right now because I think this is a time where we got to take in as much as possible and understand the wider context of everything because, yeah, things are really complicated right now and only going to get more complicated. Okay, well, well, great. Thank you for that. And just to, I don't know, Johnny, um, if it's happening on your end, but there was a little bit of a, of a lag, but I, I think the folks at home can catch what you're saying. Maybe Klaus Schwab is uh, trying to interfere with our transmission. <laughs> so anyway, I'm just saying it's, yeah, if, if you catch a lag yeah, on your end, like it's, it was happening a little bit, but I, I think it's, I think it's fine. People, I certainly got 95% of what you were saying, probably 98%. Let me follow up on one thing you said there that was interesting, because I've known a few people who had long bouts of illness. And since they had nothing else to do, they just did a lot of reading. In other words, so like I, you know, I knew them because of their views on things. And then it turned out, oh yeah, I happen to have had this illness. And I was wondering if like, you know, it's sort of like the, uh, you know, if you were in a, in a Marvel movie or something, and this was to help explain how did you get your superpowers that, that like, in other words, had you never had that illness, do you think you would just be a musician right now and you wouldn't have gone into this stuff? Or is that not really accurate? No, I think they would have destroyed music anyway. My my love of music was has always been like a like a side to whatever I was looking for, and I never knew what I was looking for. Really, I'm not sure any of us really know what we're looking for until we find it. I think it comes down to the fact that illness forces us into a corner, forces us to look at ourselves, forces us to look at our place in society. And mine was a really complicated one that was really frustrating. And loads of doctors told me I was well for a long time. And that caused a big mistrust with me and like the NF, which was, you know, something we pay towards and is supposed to be a public institution. And yet they basically, they knew they were lying to me for 13 years and they would prefer if I just curled up in the ball and died. And it came clear that to that extent at the end that mm. really did people are not happy in this world. There's big problems in this world. You can create big structures, but if it's filled up with loads of really pent up anger, hatred for other people, ideology all over the place, then you don't get any type of service. You end up with dead bodies and that's what people don't understand. So really what me actually getting better could have happened before, I suppose, but it's a case of saying, well, I can make all the excuses to why, you know, it's other people's fault, but it makes you eventually, life or death makes you get up and say, I got to do something about this and I've got to take personal responsibility instead of letting society do everything for me all the time. Because the only reason we end up trapped and we end up without our liberty is because we give it away. We mm -hmm. give it away by being 
sedatives. We just we don't move around that much. We're sedate. We're happy with our sugar and our rushes, and we're happy watching movies and and soap operas on on the screen and thinking that that teaches us something about ourselves while not learning anything of value. And eventually, that will destroy everybody. That causes, I think, that causes pain in everybody's life eventually. Okay. Now you had mentioned, so again, I do want to soon transition into the guts of your article here because it was so important, but yeah. I'm just curious, maybe as a neat little experiment for this, do you want to, because you had mentioned how what you think you guys do at Unlimited Hangout is break stories on people that maybe are not on the public's radar, certainly not the public's radar, but even like the people who follow up on this stuff and t- keep tabs on their radar. But you think, oh, in a few years, just like... I know people had been talking about Klaus Schwab going back, but like I didn't really start paying attention until I realized he was connected with the royal family. Because I just thought he was like an academic and all. Yeah, there's all kinds of academics with crazy ideas. And it was only within the last, I don't know, 18 months that I personally realized, whoa, this guy's really plugged in. I got to pay attention to him. So I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. are there any, like if you had to list a couple of names right now that you think in three or four years, everybody's going to be talking about, but right now they're still... Yeah, hidden. yeah, 100% is going to be Peter Thiel and the Thielverse in general. Nearly everybody within that circle mm-hmm. working on some of the most dangerous versions of control that the government can implement mm-hmm. in a tech, in an authoritarian tech dystopia. I think that the whole Thiel operation stinks. I've done lots of investigating and we before the virus, before all of this slowing down of the news cycle and it being just all about COVID all of the time, we were really focusing in on some of the characters there who were really interested. I think one of the people who especially, I, I don't want to be, uh, I think people know my opinion of him. I'm happy to say it out loud, but I don't want to necessarily go around being nasty to people. But I, I, where his brother Brett, I find interesting for one reason. I think Eric Weinstein is going to be someone who's one of Teal's right hand men, uh, right hand men uh, in charge of one of his companies. And he is some of what I've looked into on him. We're going to have some interesting times. Me and Eric are going to come head to head because I don't think a lot of the people who work around Teal are businessmen. I think they're intelligence agents mainly. And I think they're trying to create something which is so I think as well it should concern people like yourselves because what they're trying to do is use um, a libertarian cloak to infiltrate society so they can create something that's much darker and much more tyrannical than anybody else can imagine. Okay, that's interesting you say because partly why I liked your article you know, the one that <laughs> I promise folks we will get into it soon, is that I, I got the sense that you were not a standard sort of American right-wing libertarian type. And I can tell you, you know, you were not from the United States. And so that, that's why I like it that to me, like it, it reassures me that I'm not just like reading from my own echo chamber when somebody from perhaps a different background in terms of I, politics. I, I or mixed whatever. up with, about libertarianism in general. I mm-hmm. mixed up because I find it, it's the most dynamic innovative of the like set ideological spaces mm-hmm. it's got so many variants as such and so many uh, people view it in so many different ways and it really helps us to understand like how simplistic the other sort of things are the, the, the normal states of affair i my even my language when i'm talking about this stuff is always going to be weak i don't i you know i 
me myself, I don't try and focus on political ideology. I try and look at the people and what they do so I can take that away. And that's part of the reason why I think my work has been resonating with people because, mm -hmm. and it's one thing that I discovered that when I wrote stuff before, I had a political point of view. I was maybe the socialist bracket on the left wing. And I was, you know, and I was there going, oh, my father marched with Arthur Scargill and was a steel worker. So this must be what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. When I was there, I always found libertarianism to be such an interesting thing because it makes you look at your own ideology in a certain way that makes you realize that you're just a mass, a big mass that is a homogenous group that isn't going to answer any questions, isn't going to, I mean, if you're a socialist or if you're a conservative and you're not, you're not in the, any of the spectrum of libertarian, you're stuck. You're stuck in a place, it's rigid, you're not getting out of it and you're going to be crushed from all sides by everything. I like the idea of having space, being away from people. So, it, you know, libertarianism is something that, that attracts me. But then there's so many sides where other people, you know, would use it to introduce something that's probably a, a laissez-faire capitalism or some sort of like really more darker version of what other people want. You know, it's, it's such an interesting human, human identity is so mixed. And so is libertarianism. So I think it's much more representative of real humanity, but it depends which side of the, the fence you're on. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, let me, you said one other thing that I want to follow up on and then we'll we'll dive into your article. You, because this is something that I've been noticing too, is that these groups, these people with a lot of influence and who are operating behind the scenes largely, that they have a vision or an agenda for the next 20, 30 years and so things they're putting into place now might seem fairly innocuous, particularly because the people don't see the interaction of them. And it's only yes. really if you say, no, no, what you need to see is like what they're doing, this thing right here, X, in 10 years will lead to such and such. And then this thing over here, Y, that they're doing that seems it has nothing to do with X. Yeah. And in the 10 years, so then you, it's not just like, how do they relate today? But it's rather like looking, you know, 10, 20 years down the road and the fruits of these things. And then that's how they're, you know, that's why they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. The best way to describe this mm -hmm. is through the prism of Herman Kahn's work in the late 60s, though, which relates and gets us to this article. Right. Because I mean, that's really... Um, okay, the well, idea. Yeah, do you want to just transition right into it then? So do you want to say who... So, so for, let me yeah. just quickly, for um, the folks at home, let me just read the like abstract of your article. So the title was Dr. Klaus Schwab or How the CFR Taught Me to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And then the like the blurb to describe the article was, the world, just a few sentences, folks. The World Economic Forum wasn't simply the brainchild of Klaus Schwab, but was actually born out of a CIA-funded Harvard program headed by Henry Kissinger and pushed to fruition by John Kenneth Galbraith and the real Dr. Strangelove, Herman Kahn. This is the amazing story behind the real men who recruited Klaus Schwab, who helped him create the World Economic Forum, and who taught him to stop worrying and love the bomb. Okay, so go yeah. ahead. Take it whatever way you want to go now. Okay, well, I, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll go right to the point when Klaus Schwab is in Harvard, because a lot of the early stuff, the, my previous article covers Klaus Schwab's father working for a model Nazi company, helping create the atomic bomb project for the Nazis that was eventually a failure, and then how Klaus went on to do the same in South Africa with the apartheid regime while he was merging the same company. His father worked with Bechard Weiss with another company. But by the time Klaus reached 1964, I think he's in his mid-20s, and his father, Eugene Schwab, he knew fully well that there was one place, and he told him, he said to Klaus, you want to go to Harvard. If you want to progress, 
in your life, you need to be at Harvard right now. And Harvard was the center for thermonuclear deterrence debate and the thermonuclear war and the effect on foreign policy, because this is, of course, the mid-60s. And the previous 15, 20 years has just been filled up with propaganda and fear of the Cold War and the, the coming, the duck and cover adverts and, you know, mm. and you're all doomed. And everybody was, there was lots of panic. You can't even imagine if it was scary in America, you can't even imagine what it must have been like to live in Europe, right. where the most likely place when uh, atomic, a nuclear bomb by this point was going to be dropped if there was going to be a nuclear war. So there was a lot of fear around, and uh, Klaus would listen to his father. He would pick up loads of degrees in Europe, loads of honorary degrees as well. For a few years, he, they just threw degrees at him. They threw. He ended up with uh, something like, I think it's about 16 or 17 over a four-year period, degrees and honors and et cetera, which is just crazy, of course. But, but maybe it was six years, but still, it's still pretty crazy. He didn't even attend most of those for that long. He'd turn up for a couple of months, and then they'd give him something that would take someone else four years to mm-hmm. achieve. So, of course, you know, you've got to question his qualifications anyway. But by 1965, he was on his way to Harvard. A year later, he had enrolled. But he had not enrolled in a course, a specific course. He had enrolled in a seminar, international seminar. And this was a seminar that was uh, created in the early 50s by a man called um, William Yandel Elliott, one of the most incredibly influential men in American history that no one's ever heard of. Close advisor to six different presidents, grandee of the Council on Foreign Relations at the time, Someone who was really a mover and shaker behind the scenes, a real, a, re- a kind of hidden hand, just just off in the distance. And no, it's quite amazing. Even people who research this a lot aren't aware of his power. But he would create this international seminar. And Kissinger in 1951 was leaving Harvard as a student. George Bundy would say, oh, you should go and uh, work for the CFR. Kissinger wanted to become a spy for the FBI a year before and wanted to go into intelligence. But they said, oh, yeah, you should work for the uh, CFR. And um, he nominally... Hey, hey Johnny, can we spell out what the CFR is? Oh, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is kind of like a a roundtable group, a collection of... It goes back a long way. I Mm. mean, (laughs) I always find it funny if you look at the stuff Hoover was getting in over his desk in the 40s and 50s with loads of warnings from people who were writing saying, "This, have you heard about this Council on Foreign Relations? It's really dangerous. It's taking over the country. What's happening? And of course, all of these things would have let, been left. It were eventually released under a Freedom of Information request. And the Council on Foreign Relations really goes back to 19, I think it's about 1921 to 23. 1921, Chatham House, which is uh, the British boss and equivalent, the, the template of the Council on Foreign mm. Relations was set up as a roundtable group by the Rhodes Trust. And it was based on the roundtable idea of Cecil Rhodes. Um, and of course, Cecil Rhodes left a load of money in his will, more than you can even imagine, more than probably Elon Musk has got now in, in comparison. It was such a massive amount to set up loads of different roundtable groups that would be influential within society. And the higher up roundtable groups would be in control of other roundtable groups and then they would each be in control and so on and so forth. And you get down the level, maybe, I don't know, 10 levels from the secretive ones at the top and you get to the Council on Foreign Relations. And the Council on Foreign Relations, they may, I, I can't remember if it's, I think it's around 6,000 people in the Council on Foreign Relations. It's, it's like a lot of these things are like 20,000 people or 6,000 people are members, but they're people who are at the top mm-hmm. the echelons of society. So, the CFR in the 1950s, during this time, once Kissinger was there, were doing all of the workshops and working groups for 
nuclear weapons, foreign policy, and, and nuclear deterrence. So through this time, Kissinger would become a point where he was put in a place where he would be one of the leading authorities on nuclear war and foreign policy. He, of course, then would be put in charge of the International Seminar at Harvard, created by William Yandel Elliott in the early 50s, just as Kissinger was leaving. Kissinger would become executive director, and it was revealed in 1967 that between 1961 and 1966, for sure, probably before as well, we can assume, it was one of about six courses in Harvard that were fund- was funded for a known conduit by the C- of the CIA. And when you actually look at the course, you know, there's not much evidence about it. It's very secretive. It wasn't actually a course that was run in normal term time. It was a summer school officially. So when he says he goes to Harvard, well, do you really go to university if you're only there in the summer and it's closed? I mean, mm-hmm. or are you just attending a seminar that's using the facilities of right, Harvard right. and mm-hmm. is actually a CIA, a CIA funded? Harvard had to admit it was a CIA funded course as well. It was Humphrey Dorman who would release in the Crimson the report about, oh, look, oh, we've received all of this $146,000 of funding between 1961 and 1966 for Henry Kissinger's international seminar. And don't worry, it, it's not going to affect the college. It's not going to affect the education system. No, that's not going to be affected. No, it'll affect the world. It was The course is really about the creation of leaders. The only evidence of the four people I could find who were there so far was uh, one Japanese prime minister who went on to be Japanese prime minister, one who went on to be an Israeli prime minister, and Klaus Schwab and Pierre Trudeau. Uh, Pierre Trudeau, of course, went on to be prime minister of Canada as well. So all of them were the only ones I've got that went to this course that went ran for a long period and had lots of people in it. And when you actually examine it, it seems like it was the original or an original template for the World Economic Forum. Johnny, can I, let me establish a second, just to make sure. You're saying for right today, if we try to go back in time and say which students attended Kissinger's summer seminar program, what was it like on international relations? Is that what the technical title um, was? Something it, like that? It was called... Henry Kissinger's International Seminar. Okay, that's it. You're saying you could only find four people total and it happened to be those four? Or you're saying you found those are the four interesting people you found? Those are the only four people I found who are on the course. I promise you there's going to be lots of interesting people. And for people, this is part of what the articles I write for. Mm -hmm. I open up branches of investigations for other people elsewhere because I've learned that what I I started off doing was kind of saying I'm taking away the topsoil I'm looking underneath the topsoil and then it reveals loads of things that other people then can delve into because I can't delve into all those things. It would take my mm. entire life. Mm-hmm. So so I try and take a, a, away a bit of that. So yeah, there's loads of investigation room here for finding the other people because I promise you it will be, it will shock people because at the same time as this course was running, Herman Kahn was part of the State Department. Now, now this course, Henry Kissinger run, I should explain this. This course, Henry Kissinger run, seems to have also been about linking these future leaders with certain people who can help them develop projects that would be aligned with American foreign policy or their agenda in general. Two of the people who would be introduced to Schwab through this seminar was, as you mentioned, John Kenneth Galbraith and the real Dr. Strangelove, as he called the real Dr. Strangelove. He insists that Stanley Kubrick told him personally because he's friends with him. Like, you don't do a, a movie about a friend, do you? I mean, what's the chance? That, oh, oh, yes, my friend Stanley who wrote that said it wasn't about me. Oh, mm-hmm. no, no. But 
I mean, it had the essence, I think, of three characters in there. It had like multiple characters, including maybe Kissinger within the idea. But Herman Kahn was really interesting. Described as a, a real Dr. Strangelove, he used game theory. At the same time, Kissinger was in the CFR doing workshops. He was doing uh, a more focused workshop using game theory to look at uh, nuclear deterrence specifically. And thermonuclear war in, in, I mean, he wrote a couple of things, but on thermonuclear war in 1961 came out, which is three years before Dr. Strangelove came out and really looked at the madness of deterrence and had gamed out, used game theory to go through nuclear deterrence. And they had mapped it out quite well. And they had worked out that basically they shouldn't be that scared. The, unless it was sabotage or an accident or anything like that, you weren't going to see a nuclear war happening because it just does not make any sense. And a lot of it was, a lot of the damage nuclear bombs do was also blown out of proportion quite a lot because if you go onto YouTube now and you type in a simulation of all the nukes let off in the world, in entire history, you'll be amazed to find it's over 2,000 nuclear weapons have been exploded on this earth from the period after 1947, I think it is, up to 1999. So that's quite a lot. And people aren't really understanding of what powers of nuclear weapons. And a lot of the start of the fear of creating this fear of nuclear weapons was about creating fear to control their own population. You know, it was such a useful tool for America and Russia individually to say, we look if you don't stick close to your government, they will drop bombs on us and you'll be annihilated and it'll annihilate the world. And basically that got to an hysterical state. So by 1964, that was diffused with things like Dr. Strangelove mm-hmm. and et cetera. Um, Can I stop you for one second? Then? On. It's funny you say that because in grad school, I wrote a novel that involved at one point the United States dropping you know, a, a nuclear weapon on a, on a city. And so I went to go do research and I realized like, as long as you weren't within... 10 city blocks, like you just hang out until it rains and you'd probably be all right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Whereas movies, like when I was a little kid, had raised me to believe that, oh no, like just everything is literally melted. You know, anywhere. Yeah, and one it's, nuke and yeah. you're gone. That's it. The whole <laughs> world's gone. But that that that's how they use it. I mean, what's really weird now is when you're looking at the Ukrainian debate and all of the mass media, they've just gone back to 50s rhetoric. They've gone mm-hmm. back to being like, oh, the nuke. Yeah, they could fire a nuke at any time. And that was where they, we were once upon a time. We had got over that state because they realized it wasn't good for everybody to be on edge because that's more likely to actually cause an accident, to cause some sort of sabotage if everybody's panicking and everybody's got a problem. So by the time it was 1966, between 1966 and 1968, Herman Kahn was working on some very important things. He had been working for the Hudson Institute gaming out using the game theory um, uh, supported by the Rand Corp. Operation. And he had gone through a lot of ideas. And by 1967, he would release. So at the same time, Schwab is leaving Harvard from this international seminar where he's been introduced to Herman Kahn and John Kenneth Galbraith, who would go on to help him set up the World Economic Forum, literally come to Europe to help persuade others to be involved in the project. He would be writing um, two documents, one being in the year 2000, which I suggest everybody reads, even if it's just a summary of the tech advances that were predicted through his methods because Herman Kahn is truly a genius. Mm-hmm. There is, I, there's not many people you come across where lots of people use that word, throw it around like willy-nilly as we say over here. But 
Herman Cowan was a genius. He may not have been the nicest person, say, before 1973, 1974. He may not have been the most human character, but part of his job was to think outside the human character. So you have to have some form of understanding that his idea of things would have been warped by the fact he had to take a bird's eye view, God's view, as he said himself. He would have to take the inferior, the universal, the megalomania zoom he would fly out of the chair and say i mean he was an enigmatic character really interesting extreme genius and the year 2000 maps out nearly every single tech like advanced we expect to make uh, still in the next 20 years 10 20 years and before he mapped out everything he told us what was coming and what it looked like and this gave a lot of power to a lot of people and would i mean it obviously in full schwab klaus schwab for the rest of his life because his mentors showing him the future at the same time what's really interesting because it's running alongside this course where Herman Kahn's introduced to Klaus Schwab through this international seminar and at the same time as right in the year 2000 he's also writing the ancillary document for special educational needs for leaders and it's about how they should take who they deem as leaders, potential leaders, out of society, education, educate them separately from society at a much higher level and install in them shared common values that when they become leaders, they then instill in the people. So it's really about choosing, creating, molding puppet leaders who will install their puppet voice onto mankind. Um, and hey, let, that- me, let me just stop you real quick, Johnny. So I, I looked up, because you're right, I like that quote from Kahn. So this is, I'm reading from the article, folks. In 1968, Herman Kahn would be asked by a reporter what they do at the Hudson Institute, which, you know, was the, the home of where Kahn was doing his work. He would say, quote, we take God's view, the president's view, big, aerial, global, galactic, ethereal, spatial, overall. Megalomania is the standard occupational hazard. End quote. Now, this is Johnny talking. This was reportedly followed by Herman Kahn rising out of his chair, pointing his finger towards the sky and suddenly shouting out, Megalomania, zoom. So... (laughs) I, I, a character and mm-hmm. a half. You can hear. You can hear Fritz Kramer in him as well. You can. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Fritz Kramer had come across him because that was very much the idea of how people had about Fritz Kramer. And Fritz Kramer was a man who had like helped bring up Henry Kissinger. Mm-hmm. So there's like there's so much links. You know, he had a monocle and he spoke like this. And he, ah, you know, mm-hmm. he was like over the top. So they. That sort of like <laughs> idea of Herman Kahn as well. And Herman Kahn. Well, again, what people. Don't, that educational thing is really important. I think mm-hmm. they were planning out how to install all of these leaders and create the leaders. And this is what Schwab's then gone on to do with World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders. So people don't yeah, realize... Let me, sorry, let me on. just remind my listeners. So in my series, folks, remember, if you listen to my, what was it, five-part series on Klaus Schwab, one of the things we focused on, and I don't know if you saw this, John, but Schwab is talking to David... Uh, oh, I forget the guy's last name. David something. It'll come to me in a minute. And he's openly bragging about how the graduates from his Young Global Leaders Initiative or program, and the verb he used, he said, have penetrated the cabinets of this many governments around the world. Yes. And that's what I was telling people that it's not, we're not putting words in their mouth. You know, it's not that he means, you know, I mean, he, he used the verb penetrate. He didn't say, our superior education convinced everybody voluntarily to adopt he our methods. He uses yeah. intelligence terms. He uses mm-hmm. intelligence terms. He uses sophisticated intelligence terms some of the time, and you can hear him say it. What he says is amazing. I, most of the in most of the room mm-hmm. where I've been able to find 
information about Schwab has not been from some long lost document or etc. It's been from Schwab's own mouth right, and right. listening to what he says and realizing that he's telling you something because he's in a weird state. What he thinks is normal, I don't know. I met one guy. Matt Scow, who's uh, releasing a movie, a documentary soon about the World Economic Forum, he said he went up, I'm sure you won't mind me saying this, but he went up to Davos, he managed to get into Davos, him and his other cameraman. They don't know how they managed to do it, but they were walking around. He said it was just like they were all, for them, it is just normal. Mm-hmm. They they don't see what they're doing as being big or everything. They're just getting along. They're kind of like worker ants droning along. But above that, this supreme leader they've got in charge, who's in a special position of power, who controls the whole unit, is using terms that are obviously come from an intelligence background. And when you look at where he was trained from, he was trained for a CIA-funded class in Harvard by the man Kissinger, the, the man who, if there's an ever a man who is infiltrated more, show me him. <laughs> Show mm-hmm. me him. Kissinger is a man who infiltrated even what the, the uh, World Cup in the 1970s to sway the result and uh, fix it. I mean, serious. Klaus Schwab explains to you what he's doing. Right. He explains right. to you because, and now I think people are starting to work out. They're becoming just more overt. They're just mm-hmm. saying it out loud mm-hmm. now, and that's why we're hearing like the global summit being about. So are we ready for a new world order right, right. and things like this? Well, it's, it's all, we, we've been, you know, we knew when they were calling us conspiracy theorists in certain parts, we knew that eventually they're just going to be saying it out loud. Right. And so it was really frustrating for lots of people going through this going, but you don't understand. Eventually they'll say it out loud. And right. what's even worse is as soon as they say it out loud, most people go, oh yeah, and you go, but they just said that I've right. and you've been there. Can, yeah, can we, let's let's take a minute. I, I do want to return to your, but let's, if you don't mind, John, let's take a minute on this point because that's something I kept stressing several times when I was doing my series was that there's this sort of catch-22 where if they don't say it out loud, you know, if you're just speculating, connecting the dots and saying, oh, then this guy went here and he did this and then this guy's getting funded and he was employed over here and this company gave this money to this, you know, front group. And it, then people just say, oh, you're grasping at straws, you're stretching, we can't prove that it is. But then if they just, if you're just openly quoting from their white paper or something they say on a stage and put it on YouTube themselves, you know, not some journalist sneaking in there and getting on his phone, but it's they release it. Then the reaction is, well, it can't be nefarious because otherwise, why would they announce it to the world? Yes. You see what I mean? And so it's like, no matter what happens, the public doesn't care. One of the things that humans don't learn Mm. in school that you should learn every, probably every week, probably every day we should have a lesson on fallacies. We should just have a lesson on fallacies, on general fallacies, on understanding fallacies, understanding when someone says something for some reason, what it actually means or what they're actually doing, the process of lying to people. We should study these things. We should really understand because all of this all built on known fallacies. They're all, they're, they're just not true. They will convince, you know, we, we, we make judgments and we make a, sort of like we react to certain things because like you say, which mm-hmm. fundamentally they just seem paradoxical in some way. They're opposites. They don't seem to make sense. They've led us to this place because we follow their rules and we, we do our calculations with their, the numbers they give us and the numbers are off. Mm-hmm. So we need to start dismissing a lot of it and looking for other ways, I think. Because it is true, there's a lot of people out there now. And it's really weird because I'm seeing a lot of people within the independent media, and I'm not criticizing because this is a job that probably needs to be done, but a lot of them repeating just the literature 
that's coming out. It's not even like they're warning you about anything. They're saying, they, they just start going, oh my God, look at this. And then they start showing you. And it's so bad in itself that you don't actually need to have done anything but just present it. But that, in essence, is repeating. That's just repeating the process. And what we've got to do is try and find the other things that will really make bring it home to people, make people understand how it works. And it's almost impossible to do most of the time until you can find personally, and this is why I say majority of how we change this is on a local level, is by talking to our neighbors, is by having a conversation with our community, is by not shying away from saying something that someone else might go, you're crazy, because they'll say you're crazy now. In a year, they'll hear it on TV and realize you're not crazy. Time's mm. moving fast. You know, mm. we really, we don't know, we no longer have to spend 10, 20 years trying to convince people that there's a conspiracy theory happening or there's a conspiracy happening and there's some sort of theory that you should be taking notes because it's happening. Mm. So it's like we've entered into a point where all of these, I think, and they know this is coming. I think they had spent years before, just a couple of years before the coronavirus, trying to build up their their name as the the modern media, as a mainstream media, trying to bring up trust again. And they managed to bring it from minus 80% that it was in about 2015, 2016. That's terrible. Uh, first time it went down that low for the mainstream media up to minus 60. And these are based on World Economic Forum Trust uh, mm-hmm. Barometer by Richard Edelman and Edelman PR. And these guys, they study very carefully how people trust and et cetera. And they know there's no returning. They boosted up. And then after coronavirus is back down to minus 80%, the mainstream media is about to crash and they're about to sell off all their constituent parts as well. You know, people are only hearing it now, but there's going to be like all of the, the normal news organizations are now just going to be out and out, just like the rest are, are just being obvious what they are. They're just going to be bought out right. by private entities and you're going to see big corporations who completely own. So Pfizer will completely own CNN one day. <laughs> you know, we already see it happening because every advert sponsored by Pfizer, the whole program is sponsored. But even if you go to somewhere like in my country where it's BBC, not too complicated to understand this, you type into any search engine in the uh, UK who funds the BBC and the BBC article comes up and it shows you a pie chart and it's everyone from CIA cutouts like USAID all the way across to uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So you know that this publicly funded BBC <laughs> it's, it's a joke it's already got to a joke but now soon they're going to say it out loud. Soon they're going to just say okay we're just going to we're just going to we, we don't take any money from people. Everything's mm-hmm. private and it's all going to be teeth out then. You're going to see the true nature. And I think all of these big news agencies are doomed. And they were, they were set up by intelligence-linked arsehole, like Ted Turner anyway and stuff. So, I mean, they were always going to end up being exposed for being such things. Hey, everybody. Just your usual reminder. If you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. And a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Yeah, let me take a minute right now, and then I, we, will, we should circle back to the meat of your work. But can you speak to what are the motivations? Like, in other words, how many people connected in, like, who work for the World Economic Forum, for example, do you think they're intelligent people, you know, they got a certain skill set and that's why they get recruited into it. And do they think they're actually making humanity better? Like, is it because they look around the world and they see, well, these democratic systems aren't working, look what happens. And so that's why we need people like us. Or do they like, 
kind of not even focus on that. They just do their job and because, hey, the paycheck is... You, you get what I'm asking? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or are they well, twirling would, their mustaches behind the scenes and laughing like James Bond villains? There's the spectrum. Mm-hmm. There's the spectrum. There's the rich people who want to be hanging around with the rich people. They don't care. And whatever connections they make is only going to be beneficial for their business and beneficial. And the more they're, they're around these guys, they know they're going to get given more. A lot of the people, I think, on the lower levels are in the system and don't see outside the system. You do not know what you do not know. If you've never been taught a different way and you've been taught that this is all true by people who you think are really clever, then often you'll just follow it, whatever. But I think there's a large amount within the World Economic Forum, and I think this could be this could be shown through the list. If you, if anybody's seen the long PDF of the thousands of thousands of people who've gone through the World Economic Forum Young Global Leader Project, what you discover is that the you've got uh, it's separated up of where they come from. Are they a leader in politics? Are they in a business? And there's a load of people who are obvious why they're there. They're there because they know that's where the power is going to be in the future. They understand that, that, that you know people like Ed Miliband or Ed Balls in the UK, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, they knew where the power was going to be emanating from, and they went there and got their training, uh, got their certificate, and went up to be leaders afterwards. So as, same with so many leaders around the world. But there's a load of other people in there who don't seem to have any positions or any sort of like potential for future leaders. There's a load of people who are unspecified, undisclosed what they actually do. And when you actually look into those guys, you realize that the World Economic Forum is a way to dot intelligence-linked units, little round table groups into a big round, or inside a big round table group, all around the place, that are obviously all controlled and all link up and then make more contacts through all of the Davos meetings and et cetera, they're meeting more people. Now, in that way, then they can either work with them or they can infiltrate them. It works but well for them. So it, it seems like a hotbed of intelligence activity. I think a lot of people think that they'd, even when they work for intelligence agencies, think they're doing good. They mm-hmm. told they're doing good. When I worked for the Hilton, within six months, I thought the Hilton was good. I thought I was doing good. I thought everything I was doing was good. They trained me how to get prostitutes for people, how to arrange like uh, hookers, how to do all those things. I was doing good. You know, they train you these things. And then only once you come out of that paradigm, for me, it took six months from being about 18 to going 19 to have been surrounded by mayhem all over the place to realize, wait a minute, these people who told me I was doing good and also told me to do this, have mixed up my mind and left me confused. And I shouldn't be hanging around or listening to them anymore, hence leaving the Hilton. So these people will tell you something's good within your little ideology. And because you're getting paid and because you've got all of these problems you've got to sort out in your life and you've got to pay your electricity bill and stuff, you'll believe what anybody says. You'll t- most people do. And it's not until you grow up that you start to work out, and I really mean you get older, that you start to work out and you've had enough experience of it that you're like, when someone tells you something, you shouldn't believe it straight up. And I think the World Economic Forum is full of people who are people you shouldn't believe. They're not, they're not, they say something, but they want something else. Mm-hmm. And that's seen with Schwab's actions, seen with all the people who work in the uh, World Economic Forum. But a lot of the leaders, etc., they all go back to intelligence-linked operations. I think really it's a route and i think that's why the russians got involved over the past few years was the 
a few moments later. Okay, so we are back after that technical snag. Again, the CFR is trying to take us out. So, Jai, I think like I told you before we log back in, we got about 25 more minutes before I kind of have a hard stop here, even though I know we could go mm-hmm. for a lot longer. Maybe I'll try to get you back on if, if your schedule permits. But in lieu of that, can you... So, I don't know, do you want to, do you want to bring up the role that John Kenneth Galbraith played, or do you just want to focus on Herman Kahn? What do you think the best use of time well, is? Well, I find, I, I find for, for, for uh, you, especially as an econ- econ- economist, that John Kenneth Galbraith plays a massive role mm-hmm. in not only that type. It, it feels very interesting that John Kenneth Galbraith, for people who don't know, was educated in uh, the 30s, uh, was due to be educated under John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, and ended up, Keynes had a heart attack. And it meant that he ended up going to Hitler's Germany and standing studying land policy under Hitler, meeting a woman who uh, was at once living with Hitler's girlfriend, Unity Mitford. And it seemed like he was a bit of a spy, a spy economist, you know, someone who looks like he's dull, boring type of guy, but then would be put in all of these situations. He's such an exact replica of what the CFR looks like in a human being as well. This long gray face he had is mm-hmm. very much like the CFR. And in the war, he would do lots of um, work for the um, allies on looking at strategic economy, farm, agriculture, effects of, of the bombing in Europe. The, the bombing. And then eventually he would write more. He would write more for the CFR and he would go on to teach at Harvard, including JFK. Joseph P. Kennedy was in his first year. J- JFK would be taught by John Kenneth Galbraith a couple of years later. He would become uh, advisor to JFK, a close friend to JFK. He would be the man who drafted the speech for Johnson, uh, the initial speech after JFK's assassination. And he was played in a massive role in econ- economics at the time. He was a person who would signal the coming of Keynesian economics and then signal the coming of post-Keynesian economics 15, 20 years later. So he's like, you know, he's his reach and his uh, influence on the world of economics is massive. And his actual reach in the world in general is understated because, of course, he was one of the men who was introduced to, of course, it's the World Economic Forum was eventually created. So it was, I mean, Herman Kahn's one thing, he's able to get involved with the World Economic Forum, but John Kenneth Galbraith is much more the businessman of the World Economic Forum and would make the first keynote speech I would leave officially leave the CFR in 1973 saying it was so boring and mundane. And afterwards, which I'm, I'm going to probably get onto in later pieces, he teams up with people like the, the famous Prime Minister Ted Heath, infamous Prime Minister Ted Heath, in the World Economic Forum when Ted Heath was president. Is actually, he did a, John Kenneth Galbraith did a, a very uh, long documentary where is very interesting to watch if you're into that sort of thing because listening to John Kenneth Galbraith for more than 30 seconds will make you fall asleep. He's <laughs> extremely, extremely boring. But he also believes he's above other people. You can hear that. You know, you have to read between the lines with John Kenneth Galbraith. But he's a very strange character. He anti-Vietnam War and then by 1968 he's teamed up with Henry Kissinger who's like making the Vietnam War happen whether anyone likes it or not he's making that happen and he teams up with him for the Mandeville Lectures and of course with the International Seminar he's also a teacher at Harvard while Henry Kissinger is a teacher at Harvard at that time as well so it's not a surprise they would team up in some ways but there's stuff in the Mandeville Lectures interesting because 
topic of his speech was uh, the cool descent of Europe, you know, and Kissinger's was focused much more on influence in European foreign policy in the future. So 1968, that's where their frame, their, that was where their minds were. And it was in about 90, probably about 1963, where I think uh, John Kenneth Galbraith wrote his last work that was uh, only about economics. After that, I think he starts to put his fingers in more pies and gets gets deeper into things. So I see him as deeply CFR as a person as a manipulator of society behind the scenes, extremely clever. He's the type of guy, CFR is an interesting thing because you'd have lots of members of the CFR who's backing up people like Johnson, who Galbraith hated, and yet you Galbraith was CFR as well. So they're all basically supporting both sides, as we already know, which is the Rhodesian ideal of having two people in uh, fighting for political power who were exactly the same breed of humans, you could say. But yeah, John Kenneth Galbraith was extremely uh, important to the setting up of the World Economic Forum, which was originally called the European Management Symposium for the first two years, then the European Management Forum, and would only become known as uh, the World Economic Forum in the 90s, I think, around the start of just before the 90s, just before the Berlin Wall and, you know, Mm. the start of recruitment for the World Economic Forum, Young Global Leaders, and in Russia, the Russian foremost patriot project, which by the only account, I've only seen limited evidence of this, but three KGB agents, including Vladimir Putin, were chosen in 1991 on a side project to run alongside the Global Leaders for Tomorrow project, which was the original World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders, and was how Putin was selected eventually to be the leader or trained to be the leader of Russia. And if anybody who knows how he was installed as leader of Russia, basically yelps and points at him and says, that's your next leader, I'm off. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's it. So, I mean, it all seems like a plan in the making. I, I think for to finish this off, to explain one thing that's really important for everybody, go and learn about Herman Kahn's work. In the most recent article I've done, I've included lots of links so people can digest his work in all sorts of different ways. But by 1973, he wasn't happy by the direction of the World Economic Forum that he'd helped start it up, start up because they were getting in with the Club of Rome, looking at Malthusian population control agenda. And he didn't believe that was uh, necessary. And it forced his hand into creating um, another, writing another piece in about 1974, 1975, which was called The Next 200 Years and would say that basically there was no limits to the human growth because we can go up to space and we can mine meteors and we, we, we're going we're gonna, to uh, populate planets and go elsewhere and we shouldn't be looking to harm humans and kill humans and do all these things. Now that changed his tune because you can only go like five years, six years before and you hear him talking about putting a uh, tranquilizer in the water supply if the population gets too rowdy. So where Herman Kahn started and where he finished were very different spaces. And it's very interesting to study both to understand how a genius can get things wrong. Hmm. Okay. So, but the common link through all this and why you were focusing on all those different men in this article was that they all sort of provided, either recruited or provided assistance to or support and encouragement for Klaus Schwab to start the World Economic Forum. They literally, they were sent over to the world, uh, to Europe Mm. to meet with people like Otto von Habsburg and people and others to 
convince them it was a good idea because no one in Europe, you know, you have to understand at that time, Europe's really fractured. There's loads of uh, entities working for power. Nothing looks like it's going to necessarily be the overarching uh, sort of entity. And so people weren't interested in aligning with new people here or new people there. They were very tentative about getting involved in, in organizations just in case. The previous 20 years have been hard, obviously. And so they had to come over. They literally, Herman Kahn, the reason I focus on Herman Kahn and John Kenneth Galbraith is they come over with Klaus Schwab over 1969, 1970. They're explaining to people why the World Economic Forum is essential, why Klaus Schwab's the man to be in charge of it and helping bring people on board. And then are the showcase for the first ever World Economic Forum in 1971, where they are they are sitting on stage along with Klaus Schwab and loads of people are there to watch Herman Kahn, the famous genius and one of the most well-renowned economists in the world is speaking about this futuristic adventure of changing the world with policy creation from an institute in uh, a neutral country like Switzerland. Let me um, ask you, so at this point, I think, you know, people got a lot of details here and maybe just a pullback and big picture. So what do you say? Because I, even people who, with their training, like, you know, they're, they're fans of keeping the government out of intervening in markets and such. And so when they see some of the proposals coming out of the World Economic Forum, they recoil, but they still default to, well, these people mean well, they just don't know economics the way I do or whatever, you know, see what I'm saying? And so there's that element. And then another reason they get skeptical with people who are, you know, painting Klaus Schwab as this villain or, or what triggered this thought in my mind was a minute ago when you were alluding to how Vladimir Putin arguably was installed by the same group of people. And so sometimes people say, come on, you're making it sound like there's this group of 100 people that can run the world and the world's too complex. People are too unpredictable. And hey, didn't the fall of the Soviet Union show you can't centrally plan things? And so you're just, you had the wrong model. If you're just seeing like this group of a hundred people running the world, they, they can't, it's too, it's too unpredictable. It's a very, it's a, that's a very of the time present way of thinking. I always find, because I think all of those people who say, oh, I can't possibly be, it can't possibly be, will soon realize that, well, they're right and they're wrong. Those sort of structures do fall apart. So what they're trying to create is something that we see. If we, we look at it properly with any type of like context involved, we can see they're creating a bubble that's going to fall apart. So I, I, you know, why they, when they're saying, oh, but that can't possibly work because this will happen. Well, it's not as hard to control a lot of people as, uh, as some people think. You just need a couple of units here and there. And then policy gets written from above and instituted and, and trickles down. So, you know, the masses are easily controllable if you've got the right people in certain places. And they do have. When I was looking at the control of COVID narrative, the covering up of the paper, the SARS-CoV-2 origin paper, there's like a group of five people who did loads of it of that sort of stuff. They're a control group. They're a little control group. And underneath them, they're responsible for thousands of thousands of people who all get paid. And pay makes people have. If you get funding, if you get in, individual funding for the, all of your life or all of your career, you'll probably not argue. 
you know, it's only a very small amount of people and then they have their funding taken away and they're no longer arguing anyway. So it is easy to control these people from a very small group. You have to have the initial control over over the, the group at the top and the group at the top are all in the club together. So yes, they're not all going there with nefarious means, but some of them are and they will get their way because everybody else is being naive and thinking they can't do possibly do that. The only way people get away with things is by doing it, is by having the confidence. And there's many points in history where we see people have done the most outlandish things and it's worked out just because they have the confidence to go ahead and do it. Now, they can have the confidence, but again, I think that's false confidence that they have in this idea that they can build this structure and it not fall apart, that they can do it differently from the past. So when people recognize that and say that's the reason, yeah, I agree with them, but it doesn't make the first part not so. It doesn't make Mm. it not so that there's a load of intelligence influence on this policy writing institute and the best place to have influence over society is through policies. So both economic, social policy, and creating this idea of shared common values. I mean, when we have corporations creating shared common values, we know we're going to end up with a crap in, crap out. It's frustrating to watch because a lot of the arguments you hear made are half correct. And those people's arguments are right. Yeah, it'll fall apart. They think it won't because they think every generation in the present thinks they're going to do it right. And every generation in the present thinks, well, they can't do that because that'll all fall apart. So why would they be doing it? Because they think they can do it. It's as simple as that. Hubris. Mm -hmm. We humans, we have belief in ourselves. We're overconfident. And once you've had a life where basically you get given everything, you get born into wealth and power, or you get luck and you get the right opportunities come up, you make all this wealth and power, then suddenly those guys think, well, I know how to do it, so everything I do is right. And it's all hubris, all this idea that it's all based, again, like I said, on fallacies, on the idea that people think they're more than they are, when in actual fact, we're all really fallible humans. We all make mistakes all of the time. And if someone tells you they know all answers, they are lying to you directly. And this is what this place does. They say, we're here learning all the answers and we can give you all the answers. And really, it's the oldest trick in the book. I see it like a soothsaying. I mm-hmm. see it like, oh, we can tell you what the future is. Oh, what is it? Well, we're going to create it and then we'll tell you what we'll create instead. So that's not the same as telling you what the future right, is. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, so that's a good point you raise, you know, among other things you just said there, that it's not by you pointing out these things going on behind closed doors and these roundtable groups and the influence they got the media, corporations, banks, you know, war industries and so forth, government officials, royal family, and they're all plugged in. You're not being fatalistic because that's the reason you're writing your articles. You know, so it's not that you've just resigned yourself to say, yep, they're going to take over. There's nothing we can do to stop them because the, the sheep are too, you know, dumb to pay attention. Like that's why you're doing what you're doing. So your point is not to say they're unstoppable. Yeah. And at one point, those sheep that, not paying attention. Uh, don't underestimate sheep. Just mm-hmm. don't underestimate. I'm a Welsh man. We, we have more sheep. We have three times more sheep in our country than humans. Uh, I, don't underestimate the sheep population. Uh, something will wake them up. Something, as soon as pressure gets put on society, more and more people wake up. As soon as enough pressure gets put on, you have a breaking point and then everybody wakes up. So we're on a situation where we're hen- approaching a revolution. Anybody who researches everything, knows we're approaching some sort of revolution, and it's not going to end well for the people who are 
manipulated society for years and lied and done a lot of things where evidence has been collected by loads of people over time. Because one day, that's all going to come back home to roost, in my opinion. That all of this isn't, you can't be fatalistic about it because the history says if you were in 1938 in Germany, you would believe in that, if you were in that way of thinking, you would have believed that everything's going to be Hitler forever and Nazis are going to be ruling the world forever. And like seven years later, you'd be looking at having nothing or dead on the side of the road. People make these mistakes all of the time through life. They think, this is it now. Mm-hmm. This is it now. This is it now. And that's been the same way since we've become conscious. We always believe this is it now. Okay. There's so much more to come. And what people really should focus on is that there'll be about probably between five to 10 paradigm shift in technologies coming out in the next 10 years that could completely exterminate humankind if misappropriated or misused and are bigger than the paradigm shift that happened with nuclear weapons. So if that caused that much mess, We have no idea what's to come, but we've got to realize that these people who tell us they know what they're doing all the time, if someone tells you they know what they're doing, just work on that basic Mm -hmm. uh, principle. We don't know what we're doing. We're all trying to work it out and we should be working together rather than just leaving those guys. And it seems simple to lots of people. Those are the sheep. Leave those guys do it. As soon as those guys set set it all on fire, then all those sheep go, what the hell? Why did we leave them to take it over? But that's what we do. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And eventually they wake up. So this is only a temp. It is just a temporal stage. Every stage of our evolution is temporal. It's not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. People will have to wake up because there will be too much pressure on them. And these people who have a lot of hubris and think they're the most intelligent people in the world and think they're doing the right thing. A lot of them, a lot of the people in the World Economic Forum will think they're doing the right thing. Where a lot of the time they just haven't sat down and thought about things from different angles, from a human perspective, uh, from a humane perspective, because I don't think it's just about human. It's about that thing of being able to connect with other people. Mm. I think that also we kind of our education system detaches us from other people all of the time and makes us ready for the corporate world, but doesn't get us ready to think logically when the stress is applied. We see this come out in loads of different ways. You see that within sex crimes and exploitation and stuff, you know, a lot of people are preferential offenders and a lot of people are situational where situation pressures will see them do things they don't normally do. And we're seeing that in society. They get situational pressures and they do things they don't normally do. All of the world will come back around to full circle and eventually, hopefully, we'll all open up our eyes. There's no point in being fatalistic about it because at the end of the day, what are you going to do then? Uh, give up? Because that's why I hear people say, you've got to be positive. You've got to hope that what goes up must come down. What goes around comes around. Well, I think that's probably a good point to wrap up this discussion. Folks, my guest has been Johnny Vedmore. Uh, Johnny, thanks. I think this is by far one of the most interesting discussions that we've had on the podcast here. And good luck with all your, your work and, and keep up the good fight. And I'll, of course, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 238. I'll give links to all the things Johnny's touched upon here. Thanks so much, Johnny. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for everybody at home. I really appreciate it. And have a lovely Easter, all right? Okay, take care. Good, man. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.